0: We realized about three years in that this was an enterprise sales thing. We were gonna to have to sell in an enterprise. And we realized that we had no effing clue how to sell in an enterprise. And I started to hear about how long enterprise sales cycles could be, 12 to 18 months. And I was like, man, how do you even build a startup when that happens?
1: From Dogpatch Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales. It's difficult to succinctly describe Jeff Ma's impact on data. There are countless ways he's given us another lens to analyze the world around us. In business, he quite literally wrote the book on how to use analytics to make better decisions. In sports, ESPN taps him on the shoulder for his predictive analytics wisdom. After all, he founded one of the first fantasy sports stock markets. And many of you might know Jeff for being part of the world-famous MIT blackjack team. Yes, he was the inspiration for the movie 21, and the book, Bringing Down the House. We touch on all of that in our interview with Jeff, but this is a very different kind of episode. We spend less time deep in the data, or at the card table. This episode is for all the leaders who are thinking about how to hire their next rising star in data. Their organization's Jeff Ma, someone who's going to lead sales and go-to-market, with a multidisciplinary, multidimensional approach. Jeff grew up in the town of Worcester, Massachusetts, about 40 miles outside of Boston. His father was a chemical engineer and a professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. The child of an academic, Jeff grew up in a household that emphasized the importance of a good education. His summers were spent working through challenging math problems with his dad, and at 13, his parents enrolled him in Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, one of the most prestigious boarding schools in the nation. He excelled academically, especially in math. But the greatest lesson he learned at Exeter was something that would prove to be much more important than numbers.
0: I honestly think that I'm less mathematically inclined than most people think. And what makes me strong is that I have this background that I got from Exeter where every class at Exeter is between 10 to 15 people and they're all taught around a, what they're, what's called a Harkness table. And so every class is discussion. Every class is representing your opinion and, and being able to talk on the spot. And, and you're given, you're forced to speak because that's part of your grade. Your class participation is a huge piece of your grade. And if you don't speak, you're not going to do well in class participation. You're not going to do well in the class. So I think that aspect of things combined with my later schooling at MIT, where I learned how to think like an engineer, think like a scientist. And then later on in life, with the blackjack stuff, learned to think analytically. But ultimately, I think that what sets me apart is the ability to articulate those ideals or ideas and formulate them in a cohesive way from a language standpoint.
1: His parents, both Chinese immigrants, wanted Jeff to become a doctor. And when it came time for him to go to college, he selected MIT. He studied engineering, but his original plan was to satisfy his parents' wishes while indulging his own love of sports and focus on sports medicine. Throughout college, he developed interests in a number of different areas, as a mechanical engineering major with an interest in sports, and he studied biomechanics and orthopedics. When he was introduced to Blackjack through a group of friends, he dove deep into the world of analytical thinking, and problem-solving, and this would eventually lead him towards banking and finance. By graduation, he had abandoned his plans to be a doctor. He decided to become a trader, and here he was, barely out of college and already on his third career path. It's a theme that would continue to come up again and again over the course of his career. Jeff graduated in 1994, the literal dawn of the internet, and moved to Chicago to work for an options trading firm called O'Connor & Associates, widely regarded as one of the first hedge funds to incorporate quantitative analytics into its risk management system. In other words, right out of college, Jeff was working for one of the world's first quant funds. But after 18 months, he decided finance wasn't for him. He went back to Boston to plot his next move. At this point in his life, he knew a few things for sure. He didn't want to become a doctor. He didn't want to become a trader. And he desperately wanted to work in sports in some capacity. And all of those internet startups he was just starting to hear about sounded really exciting.
0: So I went to go to that job in Chicago. I was there only like a year and a half and just found that finance really wasn't my thing. And then moved back to Boston for a few reasons. One was because of the Black Tech stuff, I was really starting to get involved with that and that was a big part of my life. And two was I thought getting involved with startups would be an interesting way to go. Actually, it's like a funny story because when I was thinking moving back to Boston, I had a friend by the name of Eric Silverman who he and I had been in a fantasy baseball league together and he was what you would call an early entrepreneur, a software entrepreneur he introduced me to a friend of his who actually happened to be a friend of my sister's also from MIT named Brad Feld. And Brad, I would say he was like an early angel at that time. He had, I think, sold the company to SoftBank and was kind of dabbling around Cambridge. And he was like, hey, you seem smart. I'll introduce you to a few of my companies that I think are interesting. And One of the companies that he introduced me to was Thomas Massey's company. I don't know if you guys know who Thomas Massey is. He's the Kentucky, I think, senator right now that that's been under. And then another was a company called IS Robotics, which was started out of the MIT AI lab, Rod Brooks, the robotics godfather. And they were doing research robots and robotics seemed kind of interesting. So I went to go work there and there were only about nine or 10 people there. And I left there after a year because to me, it was such a shit show. Like, I just didn't really, like, believe that they were ever going to become successful. They were honestly bidding on a bunch of government contracts or research contracts, building robots to satisfy those, but they would often under budget it so that they win the contracts and they would procrastinate like you do when you're in school and they would pull two weeks of all nighters to get the project done and they get the project done well enough that they would get another contract. But I was just like, these guys are never going to amount to anything. And fast forward, I don't know, whatever, I guess, 23, 24 years, and they now make the Roomba. So they did end up becoming pretty successful. It's interesting because I've had opportunities to be really early in a lot of things.
1: He realized quickly that if he was going to truly make a go at the competitive, entrepreneurial world of internet startups, he was going to have to learn the business from the bottom up. He needed to start with the basics. He needed to learn how to code. He enrolled in an intensive 40-hour-a-week C++ programming class at Harvard, and when he completed that, he once again set out to figure out what he was supposed to do with his life. He had learned a lot from having jumped headfirst into a number of disparate opportunities, but he had gotten no closer to finding a clear path. There was something else at play during the scenes during this time. Jeff was spending more and more of his time playing blackjack. And he was making more and more money playing blackjack. Career-wise, he wasn't motivated by salary or the idea of a steady paycheck. He was looking for the right opportunity. He was looking for fulfillment. Blackjack had afforded him that luxury. And maybe it was the competitive nature of his profitable side hustle. But around this time, Jeff started to think seriously about how to get a job in sports.
2: Tell us about the passion for sports. Where did that start? Paint that picture. What made it so central to you?
0: My oldest sister was into sports. And I think that I liked to hang out with her and talk about sports. We used to create almost like Stratomatic type baseball games for us to play using dice and things like that. And I remember she cheated me but she was an older sister. She's like supposed to cheat me, I guess. But yeah, no, I think that was, I mean, my dad wasn't really into sports and he got into them because I was so into them. Wasn't necessarily because he himself was that into them. So I don't think he's the one that led me there. I really don't know how I got so into sports, to be honest. It's an interesting question that I don't really know the answer to. So
3: Jeff, the story of you being involved in the MIT Blackjack team and and the work you guys are doing to go and try to bring down the house as the as the book calls it, is well-documented. Many of us have read the book. We've seen the movie. But during that time, what was the goal or sort of your personal reason for being a part of it? Was the intellectual pursuit? Was it money? Talk to us more about what motivated you to go down that path.
0: Yeah, the formative, the reason I got involved with it in the first place, and it's actually like a funny story because the MIT Blackjack team has been around for many, many years. And it's been around before me. There's been tons of different versions of it. And when I was at MIT, it was a circle that kept closing in deeper and deeper on me. Initially, it was friends of friends that were doing it. Then it was some friends. Then it became my roommates and my best friends. And the summer after my senior year, I still lived in my fraternity. And I lived with a couple guys that were not in my fraternity, but they were like two of my best friends and they were playing blackjack that summer and I started dabbling in it. But to be honest, I was never comfortable doing it because I'm brought up from a very conservative environment where the idea of sort of gambling for a living didn't seem right. So I definitely resisted. Joining on with this crew, but then I basically started spending more time with them, and I went on a few trips with them. And I remember the first trip I ever went on, we flew down to Atlantic City and we saw a fight in Atlantic City. And I want to say it was like Sugar Ray Leonard and and someone like that. It was like his like comeback. And we stayed in this incredible suite, and I think the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. Until this 21-year-old kid from Worcester, Massachusetts, born of poor Chinese immigrants walking into the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. I might as well have been walking into the Taj Mahal in in India because it, it seemed that amazing to me. Eventually, what happened is I was living in Chicago and I was incredibly homesick. And it was Thanksgiving of the year after I graduated. And I remember my dad, my dad is not like a super emotional guy. I talked to him on the phone and he heard my voice, how like sad I was that I couldn't go home for Thanksgiving. And he calls me and he's like, just fly home. We'll fly you home tonight or, you know, Wednesday night. You can go back Thursday night. You'll at least be home. You know, Chicago to Boston is only a two hour flight. It's like, it wasn't, all this stuff now seems so ridiculous that it was such a big deal to me. And then but anyways, the point is that after I got off the phone with my dad, I talked to my buddies that were playing blackjack and they're like, hey, we're going to Vegas this weekend. Why don't you just come to Vegas on Friday? If you just start learning the system, you can just come with us. So just come with us this weekend. We'll pay for your ticket. But you got to start learning and you got to really get into this. And I'm like, okay. So that's what like got me into it. And then I started talking to them about how much money they were making. And they were making like Six figures a year just doing blackjack. And that doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but to a 21-year-old, that is a lot of money. I think my first job out of college, I was making $30,000 a year. My apartment was $450 a month for a studio apartment in Lincoln Park. It was just a different world then. And so the amount of money they said they were making playing blackjack, I was just like, holy crap, And sign me up. And so that's when I got more into it. But I don't know if I was ever really into it for the money, to be honest. Like I was in it because the teamwork aspect of it, the camaraderie and the sort of beating the system and and the trips were really fun. I mean, they were a lot of hard work, but they were really fun. It was fun to get treated really well because they always think you're high rollers and like that world of being a high roller where you get everything calm. I definitely embrace that. And it's had probably almost too much of a formative impact on the way I live my life now. What was the most that you ever brought home from one of those trips the quintessential story that that i tell people is me and my buddy wes atamian we had had our best weekend ever and we were at the mirage pool at the end of the weekend and we had all the money that we had won and all the money that we had brought out there in a duffel bag sitting underneath a lawn chair at the mirage pool wes And I were like, man, it's like 105. We got to go jump in the pool. And we were like, can we leave this bag here? Probably no one knows what's in it. No one's going to take it. And I was like, well, how much money's in there? And he said, well, it's the money we brought out here, which is 540,000. And the money we won, which is 450,000. So it's about $990,000 total. Do you think we can leave it here? And Wes was like, yeah, I don't see why not. It's not like it's a million dollars.
2: Going back to, like you mentioned... Earlier, just the concept of joining this blackjack team that there was this either mental barrier or perceptive that you couldn't or shouldn't do it, that it felt like gambling for a living maybe wasn't a thing that you should do. How did you get over that? Or what was the moment where you felt like you were going into it? Or did you never feel like you were? Was it the the Thanksgiving weekend? Or how did that come about?
0: In many ways, I don't know if I've completely ever gotten over it. I mean, I think that the way that the book came about was that Ben Mesrick was a friend, a personal friend, and he had written six books at the time. And his, the highlight of his career at that point was he was writing like these Michael Crichton-esque science thrillers. And he had written a made-for-TV movie on TBS starring Robert Wagner and Antonio Sabato Jr. And he'd written a X-Files book. So not an episode of The X-Files, but a book based on an episode of The X-Files. So it's kind of fair to say that his career was in an interesting time and he was thinking about not being a writer anymore. I remember this. He had business school applications out. And I said, hey, Ben, let's write a book about the blackjack stuff that we did. And part of the reason that I wanted to do that was I wanted to completely tell the story for my own self- I don't wanna say validation, but just something about it. I wanted the story to be mainstream and I thought people would wanna know. Now there's a lot buried in here, right? Which is that one, card counting in itself is almost the antithesis of gambling because you have an advantage and your advantage is quantifiable and mathematical. In, in poker, really good poker players have an advantage, but it's pretty hard to quantify that advantage and it's not foolproof there's a lot of times that you could come across someone that that is better than you or whatnot there's there's not that in blackjack it's sports betting right it's somewhat quantifiable it's somewhat you can gain an advantage but not the same way that blackjack is the only advantage the stock market has is that it's a it's a positive sum game meaning that the market typically goes up over time so you should be able to have a positive expected value but day trading certainly is not that's closer to poker than it is to blackjack blackjack is 100 mathematical it's a closed system and that notion of now the problem is that you don't apply your art in terms of blackjack you don't do it in an office you do it in a casino and so there's always something weird about going to work at a casino and i mean i guess I again like i'll, I'll bring this back like you know, I have two sons now, when you think about like what I want them to do in their lives, would I feel comfortable with them being a professional blackjack player, professional poker player, professional better? Not really. I definitely wouldn't want them to be. So I mean, that maybe is the answer to the question, which is, I don't know if I've ever really felt comfortable with it. But at the end of the day, it is who I am. I am someone that likes risk that likes unpacking systems, that likes the dopamine hit of a game of chance.
1: Jeff says that Blackjack, if nothing else, gave him the financial freedom to go down any path he wanted, without fear of failure. This allowed him to explore various passions and interests all throughout his journey. In the late 1990s, still just a few years out of college, Jeff finally got the break he was looking for to get into sports, although it came from an unlikely place. He'd picked up water polo as a hobby and would often go back to MIT to work out with their team. Eventually, coach John Benedict told him he couldn't let him play unless he was officially part of the team and asked him to work alongside him. Jeff started traveling, attending practices, and even working on game strategy with the team. After a year, coach Benedict accepted a job as assistant athletic director and asked Jeff to take over as head coach. All of a sudden, he had a job in sports,
0: and so I was into it. I was learning, and he gave me this opportunity to coach NCAA varsity sport. And it was a part-time job, and I would do it. And I I signed on to do it. It was basically two and a half months out of my life that I would be at the pool every day from say 4:30 to 7:30 ish, as long as we weren't in doubles. And almost every weekend, I was going on trips. But I was able to do that because I was getting money from the blackjack stuff. I think I got paid like $6,000 my first year to be the MIT coach and then 8000 And then it was like scaled up to like $10,000. I really thought I was getting one up over them for their paying me so much. But in the same time, too, I was also almost like volunteering at startups to some degree.
1: And by the way, volunteering at startups was another way he killed time while earning money playing blackjack and coaching water polo. He worked for a company some of his friends had launched called Inner Dimensions, which developed one of the earliest versions of instant messaging. Jeff described his role there as an unpaid intern. But he developed an understanding of web development he wouldn't have learned without it. Later, he helped found a company called Golfspan, which brought some of the best professional golf coaches in the world together to create short, web-based instructional videos. And this was before YouTube or any sort of streaming service. Then he was the founding CTO of a fintech startup called Circle Lending, which introduced one of the earliest platforms to transfer money online, long before we'd heard of PayPal or DocuSign. He accepted very little money for most of these roles, but the education was invaluable. And soon it would lead him to his biggest professional breakthrough.
0: So this was, Incredible. And I, honestly, I didn't care because I was learning so much because I was having this opportunity. I was not qualified to be CTO of a startup. I didn't realize now what that even means. I was getting to learn on the fly and I didn't care because I had Blackjack making me money. I had this great hobby of coaching water polo. And I had this other thing that was teaching me about technology and about starting companies and whatnot. I was doing that. And then the book Moneyball came out. And a woman that I knew worked for the Celtics at the time. And she reached out to me and she said, hey, there's this guy that I work with. He's looking to hire an intern to do some analytics work for him on the basketball side. His name is Daryl Morey. And would you be interested in coming in and interviewing for this? I think you could be a really great interview." And I was like, yeah, it'd be awesome. So I go in an interview with Daryl Morey. Now, this is before Daryl was anything, right? This is before Daryl was starting huge uprisings against world powers with a tweet. He interviewed me and he interviewed a guy by the name of Mike Zarin. And we were the last two contenders for this, what was supposed to be like an almost like an unpaid internship. And he said, hey, Jeff, I'm going to go with Mike because Mike is really a huge Celtics fan. And I think he will do this for six months and move on to your next thing. And he will be here forever. And it turns out Daryl, like in many times in his life, made the right decision because Mike is still with the Celtics. He's the assistant general manager. He's probably the best assistant general manager in the world because he's just incredibly smart and analytical. And so I went to a friend of mine by the name of Ed Volandry. And so Ed actually started a consulting firm called Altman Volandry, which was doing mostly focused on telecom strategy works or like a boutique McKinsey I went to him and he's a guy that I also knew through water polo and I said, "Ed, can I come spend some time at your company and, and learn about the world of consulting because I think I want to start a sports consulting firm where I take this sort of acumen around analytics and see if we can go and work with teams and get paid to work with teams and help them with their analytics." And he was really into sports and so he said, "Yeah, let's do it." So I went there and I worked there for a month and One of our first meetings was with this guy that he played water polo with at Brown, where he went, who was living out in Orange County. And this guy, Warner, his sister had just been out on a date with this guy, Mike Kearns. And Mike was working for a baseball agent at the time named Jeff Morad out of the offices that the movie Jerry Maguire was filmed out of. And he was working with Lee Steinberg and originally David Dunn, who were some of the big... OG names and sports agent business. Mike was the chief of staff for Morad and they were evaluating new ideas and concepts in the world of sports. So Warner went and talked to Mike about what Ed and I were trying to do in the world of sports analytics. And Mike immediately was like, oh my God, I want to meet this guy. And so there was a poker game set up for us to all go play poker at Warner's house. And the next day, We were going to do a three-hour meeting with Jeff Morad in Jeff Morad's offices.
1: Also at this poker game was one of Jeff's personal heroes, Oakland A's general manager, Billy Bean. He had been the focus of a groundbreaking book by Michael Lewis called Moneyball. The book explained how Bean began using data and analytics as a way to assign value to a baseball team's players the results upended more than a century of conventional wisdom around what made a player most valuable to a team. The impact of this book changed the face of baseball. And in the ensuing years, his methods have been adapted and incorporated by just about every other professional sport. But when Bean showed up at the poker game, he had something else on his mind. It was an idea for a sports betting business that would allow users to buy and sell athletes like stocks. This was a time when fantasy sports was becoming big business and Quant Analytics was transforming both sports and trading. Bean would eventually serve on the company's board of directors. And Jeff, he desperately wanted in.
0: We just have this idea. And of course, that moment I was like, I mean, this is, I'm a sports fan. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, maybe this is my calling. And I actually remember kind of thinking like, yeah, this isn't that great an idea. I don't totally buy into it. It's too complicated, blah, blah, blah. But let's go after this. And so we went after it. Mike and I started this company and we moved to Silicon Valley, San Francisco specifically. I never thought I was going to leave the Boston area. Was on a plane to San Francisco, I think four months later to start a new life there. And that sort of kicked off. When we were fundraising for this, we met with a guy by the name of Kevin Compton. And Kevin was the owner of the San Jose Sharks at the time. He was the operating partner at Kleiner Perkins during the heyday. He and I, we met with Mike and, and he basically offered to finance the company, put a million dollars in and be the seed funding. And they don't call a million dollar seed by any means now, but you a know, million dollars was a lot at that time to start a company. And we had all these incredible sports figures involved. Billy Bean was on the board for a little while. Bill Walsh was an early investor. Jerry West was an advisor. It was an incredible experience. But three years into that, we had spent like $15 million and the company was just, it wasn't successful. We had a tiny niche business and we had a tiny dedicated bunch of users, but they were just niche. And we realized that at that time. And so Facebook opened their platform Right around then, and we had some young people at the company, a common friend of ours named Brian Mead was basically like an unpaid intern, but he was very much in, in touch with what was happening in technology. And he really believed that we should fundamentally think about building something on Facebook. And the notion of building on a distributed network at that point, it was a new concept. And when you think about startups, one of the most important things in a startup is to be incredibly focused and to build on another platform with a whole new experience, that's probably the opposite of focus. And so there was a lot of reluctance to do that, but we did it. And literally within a month of launching this thing, we had over a million users in it. And we had been building this other experience, ProTrade, for three years with millions of dollars behind it and millions of marketing dollars behind it. And we probably literally had an active user base of less than, a fewer than 10,000 users. So we basically decided to go all in on Facebook and the iPhone and distributed platforms. And that was really a huge move, probably one of the biggest moves in my life that sort of ended up becoming successful. We sold that company to Yahoo in 2008. Now, if you remember what was happening in 2008, the economy was not doing particularly well. So to sell a company in that time was really lucky and was kind of a blessing. It allowed us to go out and try some other things.
1: But Jeff didn't want to work for Yahoo. He had spent his entire career taking opportunities only because of what he thought he could learn from them. Yahoo didn't seem to be a company that had much to teach him. Instead, he decided to take a year off. And during that year, he wrote a book called The House Advantage and he began speaking to companies around the world about how they could leverage data and analytics to make better business decisions. But soon he got the urge to launch another startup, but this time he wanted to do it by himself. This led to the creation of 10Xer, a company that combined gamification, data, and analytics to help employees quantify for themselves how effective they were in their jobs. The mission was lofty, get people familiar with their quantified self in order to change the way they work. He had planned to focus on selling direct-to-consumer, but he quickly realized that 10Xer was a B2B product. There was just one problem. He knew nothing about enterprise sales.
0: We got True Ventures, this guy Panit Garwal, to come along also, and we started a company. And we went about it for three years and realized after three years, And we started it with very much like Atlassian envy, where we're like, oh, we want this to be like JIRA, where you just, people just use it and then you'd have to worry about enterprise sales. And that world's not real, right? You guys know it's just not real. And so we realized about three years in that this was an enterprise sales thing. We were going to have to sell into the enterprise. And we realized that we had no effing clue how to sell into the enterprise. And I started to hear about how long enterprise sales cycles could be. 12 to 18 months. And I was like, man, how do you even build a startup when that happens? And so Twitter approached us and they were really interested in using our tool internally. And they had just started an engineering effectiveness team. A woman by the name of Rondini Romani was running it. She was like, hey, we need what you guys are doing here. Can you guys just come build this here? We'll just buy you guys and you can build it here.
2: You mentioned at 10Xer that you had this realization that this is an enterprise sale. You're hearing 12 to 18 months. Did you go down that path once you learned a bit and try your hand at enterprise sales? And if so, what did you learn from that? What was that experience like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't, we talked to some enterprises and things that we learned as we talked to them was, one, we're not really in the cloud yet. We're still on-prem. And so you're going to have to build an appliance that listens and then sends the data out securely to your app. So we knew that that was going to be a big pain. We knew that the whole process of getting something sold was going to be really long and arduous. And we also just learned that it was like sales, which none of us were salespeople. So there were just all these things that were not endemic to a startup that we realized were going to be the keys to our success. So it was definitely not something that we were ready to do.
2: Talk a bit about the Twitter experience. Now you are going into a bigger company and navigating the organization and what it was like, the teams that you're working with, how that connected to go to market and just the Twitter experience overall going into a big company at that point.
0: Yeah. I mean, so Twitter was, it had become incredibly important to me personally during my time at 10Xer because when I was at Pro Trade and Citizen Sports, they started a Twitter account for me, but then our PR people kind of ran it. I think those were those days when people did that, right? And they like kind of just like would tweet stuff out, and I didn't use it myself. And then when I started 10Xer, I realized, holy crap, this is an important way for me to network with people and to market my product and all these tech people and writers and developers, they're all on Twitter, so I need to start really using my Twitter account. So I did. And it became the number one app for me. like open my phone, it was Twitter. And so the idea of going to work at Twitter. After having that sort of fanboy of the actual product, being that fanboy of the product, it was really fun.
3: So tell us a little bit about the journey from Twitter to Microsoft. Obviously, Microsoft's gone through a lot of changes, almost all positive over the last five to seven years. What got you excited about this experience at Microsoft? And walk us through the sort of recruiting process and
0: figuring out that this was something that you wanted to bet on next. Eric Boyd reached out to me. And he was like, hey, Jeff, we have this kind of interesting opportunity that one of my colleagues, Charlotte Yarconi, has on her team leading this sort of startups thing. And I was at first like, no, I'm not interested in this. But then I was like, I should probably think about it. And I took a call with Charlotte and really liked her. And she encouraged me to come up to Redmond and spend some time with some other people. So I went up there and did an interview all day. And COVID hit. And a lot of what I was working on at AT&T was going to either, who knew when it was going to come back. And the more I, I sat down with this guy, James Phillips, who runs a lot of cloud products, he was telling me about how well his business was doing. And this guy is brilliant. And I was just like, why did you decide to come work for Microsoft? And why are you so excited about this? And he said, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And when he said that to me, I realized that the startup's role that they were suggesting for me was that way also. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take something as iconic and powerful and important as Microsoft and really expand it to the startup, expose it to startups at large and in a scalable way. And I just realized how huge an opportunity this was for me. So I decided to do it. And am obviously, like I definitely had some level of reluctance before I started. And I was kind of going in with open eyes. And Every day that I'm I'm at Microsoft is a day that I'm happier that I'm there because it's an incredible place to work and the job that I have is incredible. I feel so lucky to have it. Tell us more about the charter that you have at Microsoft with startups. Yes, I run a program called Microsoft for Startups, which historically has been a program that has created programmatic experiences for startups to build with Microsoft specifically on Azure before I got here, there wasn't a clear understanding of where is our place in the ecosystem and how do we ultimately double down on that and be focused on that? And where have we, as Microsoft, earned the right for your business? And in many ways, that's for post-product market fit companies that are trying to sell into the enterprise. We have earned your right. We have earned the right for your business because we allow you to really accelerate your business by you know, connecting you with customers, by allowing you to transact in the marketplace and avoid procurement. We have programs where we will bring customers to you. We have all of the iconic Fortune 100 companies, they're all on our technology and they're all our partners and bringing us their customers also, they're bringing innovation to them is incredibly important.
2: Tell us a bit about On the data side and
0: the podcast, Data and the
2: Future of Sales, you mentioned co-selling opportunities. Are there aspects of the data combined with the co-selling that, how that is enabling a team to solve the problem of selling to enterprise, which as you described, right? Even after you get to product market fit, getting those relationships, the 12 to 18 month sales cycles, what is Microsoft bringing to the table in terms of data and in combination with that
0: co-selling and marketplace model? Yeah, I guess the way to kind of think about it, right, is that with Microsoft, we allow startups to, one, I think the most challenging thing for us is understanding which startups we want to work with, because we ultimately want to work with startups that we can make successful. And there is a lot of data or pattern recognition or historicals that we can consider when making those decisions. Talk to us a little bit
3: about the acquisition of GitHub and LinkedIn and how that enables Microsoft to better serve startups. You sort of talked about a little bit earlier how if someone's starting a startup, those are some of the first places you're going to go. Talk to us a little bit about how those acquisitions are helping to enable you in your role.
0: Yeah, I mean, GitHub, when you start a company, they're just some basic tools you use. And historically, those tools have been spin up an instance on AWS, set up a GitHub repo, refresh your LinkedIn account so that you're more visible and that you can actively like understand how to use it to recruit. And I think those tools are incredibly important for startups. And again, from an ecosystem standpoint, linking those all together, making them work all together, using the GitHub community in conjunction with LinkedIn to recruit, using the GitHub community to understand what projects are becoming really important, where a lot of innovation is happening. And so I think that they're going to be incredibly important for what we do with startups. What have been some of the biggest surprises
3: since you joined Microsoft, both good and bad? I think the
0: good part is that the people are pretty incredible. And I think also the ability to recruit to Microsoft in this time is really easy. I'm surprised that the really high-quality people that I've been able to get interested in the different opportunities that I had. I feel like Satya and his leadership team, they're very principled in how they approach things and it doesn't feel very big company-ish. So I think generally that's been very positive. And in many ways, the only moment that I felt like really good about what I wanna do in my life is this current job that I'm doing. <laughs> this is like the first time I felt like, okay, this is a place that I could be at for a while there's a mission that's important, there's a business opportunity that's important, and there's resources behind it that feel stable. In terms of the negatives, I honestly don't have a lot of negatives. I I think with a big company, the, the challenge is that there is a lot of communication that needs to happen on places where there's overlap. Otherwise, you create a ton of inefficiencies. And then I think that that's the big thing is how do you communicate well in a company of this size when there's so much happening that is typically pretty overlapping.
3: If you could go back from everything that you've learned across entrepreneurship, sports, analytics, gambling, what would you do differently knowing what you know now and maybe some of
0: your biggest regrets along the way? I think the biggest thing that I regret is people management. Not regret, but I think that there are things that I wish I had known about people management throughout my career that I think would have made me better. And it's not just people management below down, it's management up. It's just how you interact with others in ways that are, because I'm very direct and straightforward and I approach things from a point of view of my own point of view, which is this direct witness, but there's different styles and there's different people out there. And your ability to be empathetic in how you deal with people that are different than you is core to whether you're a successful leader or not. What is maybe a
3: legacy that you're hoping to leave if we look 10 or 15 years down the road at Microsoft for
0: startups? In many ways, this role is interesting because I do have a long-term perspective on it. And I think that's one of the most important things in life is to have a long-term perspective as you think about the decisions you make. And that long-term perspective is ultimately trying to change the startup ecosystem at large in a few different ways. One, fundamentally giving startups an opportunity to have a partner like Microsoft and Azure fundamentally from the beginning when they're building. So right now, they probably don't even think about Microsoft as a partner. They think about building on AWS or GCP. And they're not thinking about, ultimately, how do I build with someone like Microsoft that can actually make my business accelerate and my life easier down the road? And so changing that native decision, the formative decision on cloud, is like something that I I want to change before I leave Microsoft. The other is much more around the startup ecosystem at large. The idea that opportunity is not equal amongst different underrepresented minorities or different groups, whether it's females, African-Americans, Latin-Americans, whatnot. There's just not the typical entrepreneur does not look very diverse. And so how do we attack that problem from its roots and change it? This isn't like a couple hackathons or some whatever. This is like actually like figuring out how we create more entrepreneurs from the underrepresented minorities. And how do we give the tools to those people to actually allow them to become entrepreneurs. And there's some deeply rooted reasons why these areas are not diverse. And so changing that is a really important piece of what I'm trying to do at Microsoft. And knowing that I have Microsoft's resources to do that is incredible.
3: Support for this podcast is brought to you by Clearbit. Clearbit is a marketing data engine that helps you deeply understand your customers and build a hyper-efficient growth engine. We've known the team at Clearbit for about four years
2: now and use Clearbit data for all our own projects. Just about all of our customers rely on Clearbit data to cut through the noise and focus their go-to-market teams. We've seen so many examples of Clearbit really helping their customers better understand their sales and marketing funnel. And some of their customers are able to get really creative with their sales plays. For example, we worked with Segment, one of the world's leading customer data platforms. They're using everything from Clearbit Reveal to understand which companies are on their site from anonymous traffic, Clearbit Technographics to understand their technology profile and how good of a fit they would be for segment, and Clearbit Prospector to identify the ideal contacts at each company.
3: Thank you to Clearbit for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Clearbit, visit clearbit.com.
1: Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Advisors. Written by Jack Burr from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from Studio Pod, editing and mixing by Nota Lab, and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Tree Line Studios.